Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as you're turning, let me say that uh, parents are invited to dismiss their children ages 4 to 6 to children's worship training. And if they're good, they will be returned at 12 o'clock. If they're not, they will be returned at 12 o'clock. 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we continue our sometime series in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy. This is God's inerrant word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy, when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father and our God, this is your word which is inspired. It's true and sure. And we do ask that you might make it a blessing in our hearts and lives. Help us to hear it read and preached. Help us to take it to heart and life. We pray that your Holy Spirit who gave it by inspiration through the Apostle might now apply it by his great work of illumination. Change us, we ask, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a minister? Well, the text before us answers that question. We we have the privilege of, of listening in on a conversation between the Apostle Paul and his young understudy, pastoring for him in Ephesus, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was one dealing with a, a congregation full of great potential and great challenges. And the Apostle Paul here writes a letter to him, which is from one man 
in the service of God to another man in the service of God. But we know, as we have noted, as we have read along through this book together, there are occasions when there are changes that occur to the plural, so that it's not just a private letter from Paul to Timothy, but it's a letter from one man to another expected to be read in the hearing of the congregation. Paul is speaking to Timothy and to you and me. Here in this chapter, he tells us what makes a good minister. Because, of course, the whole point of his entire book is that Jesus is the one who gives good gifts to his church. We have seen in previous chapters that Jesus gives good gifts. For example, he gives good gifts of apostles to his church and of elders and of deacons. And here we come particularly to the pastoral ministry narrowly defined. Paul is speaking here to Timothy in his capacity as one who preaches and teaches the Word of God to the people of God. And he answers the question, what makes a good minister? What is the gift like that Jesus has given to his church? You may have heard me say it before, but many years ago, when our family was in Edinburgh, I had the privilege of hearing Principal Emeritus Clement Graham of the Free Church College, Free Church of Scotland College, now known by that august title, Edinburgh Theological Seminary. I heard him address the question, what makes a good minister? The Free Church College was and is there on the mound in Edinburgh, right in the center of the city, right in the focal point of the city. The the trains go by to Waverley Station in the garden below. The, The shopping street, Princess Street, with its hordes of people also on the, on the hill below in the valley, they go back and forth, all the teeming masses, but they're on the mound. There on the mound is a Bible-believing evangelical seminary where Principal Graham taught men and trained them for the ministry. And, and it is next door to one of the most liberal theological seminaries in all of Europe, which is where I got my Ph.D., Oh, I had an office at the Free Church College, and I, I did my studies at New, at, uh, at New College in part of the University of Edinburgh. But I had the great privilege of hearing these evangelical men on a daily and weekly basis keep my soul alive as I labored away in the coal mines of uh, liberal theology. Principal Emeritus asked the question rhetorically, What makes a minister? And then in his Scottish brogue that I wish I could imitate better, he said, well, I'll tell you what makes a minister. He said, it takes three things to make a minister. It takes grace, it takes Greek, and it takes gumption. Well, I didn't know where he was going to get those in the text, but he had me sold from the time he rolled his first R. Grace. Greek and gumption make a minister. And grace, grace, Greek and gumption in the life of a man who is a gift of Christ to his church is, is what is being highlighted here in this passage. Now it's an interesting passage as, as the chapters are divided. Uh, the chapter divisions are not inspired. The verse markings were not given under the breath of the Holy Spirit. But, but there is an interesting thing that happens in the opening uh, five verses we have great warning which is laid down. There will be those who devote themselves to deceitful, deceitful spirits 
and the teaching of demons. Have you ever, have you ever thought about bad theology that way? Those who, who don't preach and teach the Word of God, but rather are caught up in, in some theological fad of the day, or, or maybe they have been profoundly influenced by some uh, school of thought that doesn't get its ideas out of the Scriptures. Where do those ideas come from? Well, we think, oh, well, that's the, the German idealistic school, or, or oh, well, that's the, that's the thought, you know, of, of that uh, particular sect or group. No, the Apostle Paul says, these are the teachings of deceitful spirits and demons. He he puts an apostolic authoritative finger on the root danger behind unbiblical teaching in the assembly and worship of God. They have all sorts of strange ideas. They forbid marriage. They won't let you eat some foods by these ascetic kinds of restrictions they they puff people's minds and hearts up into thinking that they're better than everyone else. Oh, he rebukes them by saying in verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received at thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Well, we understand that. We've just been through the Thanksgiving season. And if mom puts a turkey on the table, praise God for the turkey. And if mom puts a ham on the table, praise God for the ham. If it's a chicken, thank God for the chicken. If it's beef brisket, well, we're very deeply pleased, no matter what it is. God has made it. We'll shoot it, cook it, and eat it, as a friend said once. Thank God for His good provision. It is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. And everything else Paul says in this chapter is rooted in the fact that it is these values surrounding the Word of God and the word of, that comes from the Word of God incarnate, Christ Jesus our Lord, that makes the ministry of the church what it should be. Now, I have the great privilege this morning as your associate pastor of standing in the pulpit and taking this text and applying it to your hearts and lives as we give thanks to God for the way that He has blessed our congregation. You see, it's all right for one minister to stand in the pulpit and say that God has gifted us and blessed us with a senior pastor who has grace and who has Greek and who has gumption. First grace. Verses 9 through 12 describe in fine apostolic fashion what the good minister needs, that is, the grace of God. Verse 9 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Beginning with that verse and going down through verse 12, we hear the Apostle Paul driving his point home. We hear the hammer as it hits the nail and rings out true. This is not just a passing verse that he's reciting or or mentioning or pinning. It is one of the faithful and trustworthy sayings which are sprinkled in the pastoral epistles. It's the Apostle Paul raising his finger and saying, Listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. This is an important, pithy proverb of theological and biblical truth. You must grasp it. Set it to memory. Never let it leave your thoughts. And then he recites it. He says to us in verse 10, 
For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Here Paul is beginning to turn and to address the topic of what the good ministry looks like. And he's emphasizing for Timothy and for you and me that the minister must have grace in his life. That is, he must have the proper hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, our hope is in the Lord. He is the only one who can save us. He is the only one who can translate us, change us, take us from darkness and death to life eternal with Him forevermore. He is the one that can bring a change and make a difference. He can take us from being a miserable creature, sinful and repugnant to a holy God, to one who is washed in the blood of the Lamb, who is robed in the righteousness of Christ, who is welcomed in spite of themselves because of His beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is emphasizing to Timothy right up front that grace is needed in the life of every church and of every pastor of every church. The gospel, Jesus and the good news of Him as the Savior is what is central to being a good minister. Have the right hope, Paul says. Keep your eyes on the Savior, the one who is sent by the living God to save us from our sins. Because you see, to know the true and living God, to have gospel hope in Him because of His Son, means that you have the right message to give to the congregation. Verse 11 says, Command and teach these things. And so with one short sentence, he takes that faithful saying and he pushes it. He drives it home in the heart and life of Timothy and of you and me. Timothy is not to be busy teaching old fables that have been told by silly people in the church. He's not to be influenced by the doctrine of demons. You know, the doctrine of demons is not like uh, the smell of skunks. It's not the kind of thing that gets up your nostril and fries your brain and you know it's bad and, and you just want to get away. No, the doctrine of demons smells like a rose at first. Uh, you start to taste and it's oh so sweet at first touch. But yet, mixed in with that sweetness is a poison of death that paralyzes and that expires the soul as we are taken down, down, down in the teaching of demons. The Apostle Paul is contrasting that and saying, no, you need the sweet savor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You need to remember that He is God and man. You need to remember that as the mediator, He came and suffered and died for His people. You need to remember that right message and hold out gospel hope to His people. Grace, grace, Real grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is what we need in the church and what every faithful pastor ought to preach. And so every faithful pastor must have a right heart. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but see the belie- set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith, in purity. Be an example, he says. As the pastor of the church in Ephesus, you be an example to all the flock and to all the community. When they see you, let them see love in action, faith in life, purity defining who you are as through your speech and your conduct you show yourself to be one who is united to Christ Jesus our Lord. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is saying that Jesus and trust in Him ought to make a difference in Timothy's life, ought to characterize it, ought to make it what it is, that it is attractive and it is genuine in the eyes of the congregation and of the community. What makes a minister? This kind of grace as God works in heart and life. And this morning it is my joy to say how blessed we are in this congregation to have a pastor who loves the Lord, who speaks of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in warm, clear, direct, and solid terms. He speaks of His glorious gospel and He calls you out of darkness and into light. He calls you to love the Lord more and to trust the Lord more. And I say this not to His credit per se as a man. I say it because of the grace of God first working in His heart. There's not a one of us here who knows and loves the Lord that couldn't stand up and and with our head held low and with a blush on our face catalog heartbreaking and devastating things in our, our lives where we have not lived in, in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity before God and man. Perhaps we could speak of our non-Christian sins, of, of the struggles of heart and life before we came to know Jesus, where, where we lived a life in keeping with the lostness which characterized our soul. Or maybe we could speak about our Christian sins. Those besetting sins, those those troubling realities that still need to be conquered and that that we struggle against each and every day and and we lift up prayer and and we anguish before God and, and in His grace alone do we make progress. Grace is what it is what is needed by all of us. And grace for the pastoral ministry is absolutely essential if the whole congregation is to make progress. And God has blessed us with such a man. And for that, we give thanks to Jesus, the one to whom the credit belongs. You know, I've had the privilege down through the years of being in a number of different congregations. I preached to a congregation in Mississippi one time of Well, as far as I could tell from who came to the the worship service that Sunday morning, it consisted of two people. One of those little country churches, and and everybody was either sick or out of town, and it was just two people. And and as I remember, I think they both fell asleep during the sermon. I've been in congregations of thousands and, and preached before a congregation with too many eyes for me to make contact. And every congregation has a certain personality, a certain makeup and habit. And every congregation has a pastor of a certain profile and and a certain set of gifts and abilities. I've uh, seen churches in multiple denominations, having grown up in one and, and visited another, and then 
come into the PCA and having gone overseas and in a couple of different countries over in the UK, both in Scotland and in England, seen Christian ministries of different sorts. And you know, they fall into two broad categories. Those that know the Lord. Those that love the Lord. Those that under the preaching of the minister, you could actually get saved and come to know Jesus and grow in grace and love and faithfulness to Him. And then I must say there are others. There are other kinds that I have seen and I have heard. Those kinds of ministries where you have that growing fear as you listen. That the man knows more of humankind than he does of the divine. That the man is in fear of man rather than in the fear of God. That he opens the word of God and reads me a verse, but what comes from his mouth from that point forward is something he read that week in the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or saw on CNN or, or was in some favorite piece of literature that, that he was sharing with me his learned ideas and they were very impressive but just not at all appropriate to the pulpit and the preaching and teaching appointed by Christ. This is a common plague down through the history of the church. Uh, There's a book that I commend to you. It's called The St. Andrew's Seven. It's published by the Banner of Truth. You ought to get it for the person you're sitting next to for Christmas, and then you can borrow it from them and read them to them as well. The St. Andrew's Seven catalogs Thomas Chalmers, who was a Church of Scotland minister in the middle of the 19th century, and a number of his students who ended up going and being missionaries around the world. But the book begins telling us about Chalmers before his conversion. You see, he was a minister before he was ever saved. He took vows. He he took training. He he went through the whole process of being ordained in the Church of Scotland. and, And he was rewarded for his great mental abilities and his upstanding eyes in the community by being given a parish in the St. Andrews area so he could also devote his time to that which was his first love, mathematics, teaching at the university. You see, back in that day, it was, it was very common in the moderate party of the Church of Scotland, as it was called. Today, we would just simply call them liberals. The moderate party, you see, it was in control of the church, and, and its moderator one year bragged that the Church of Scotland had the most educated and finest ministry of any denomination in the world. And he went on to catalog a number of the different areas that Church of Scotland ministers uh, exhibited enormous world-renowned kind of expertise in, like mathematics and astronomy, geology and history, classics and philology. They were enormously able, especially in the rising tide of interest in the 19th century, In the sciences, do you know that the first chair of science and theology in all the world was in Edinburgh? Science and theology. And I'm convinced it had less to do with the theology and much more of the rising Victorian interest and enthusiasm for scientific endeavor. My point is this. There have been men in pulpits down through the years 
who could speak and teach and entertain and fascinate and inspire on some level that had nothing at all really to do with the very Word of God written. That they were lost in their sin and their misery. They didn't know Jesus. Their soul was not animated and so they themselves could not communicate, could not translate, could not apply to heart and life and conscience the good things of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And an amazing thing happened in St. Andrews one year. God the Holy Spirit, poured out by the Father and Son, came and shook that man, Thomas Chalmers, and changed his heart and life, transformed him as a man in his ministry. And he ended up pouring himself, not only in his congregation, but in a handful of students who went off having prepared for the gospel ministry under his learned ways to spread the gospel to countless millions. Oh God, the Holy Spirit is the one who must give us the grace of Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the most essential thing to gospel ministry. There is no substitute. A pink pack, a yellow pack, and a blue pack will not do. No substitutes allowed for grace in the life of the ministry. And thank God we have a man in this pulpit who has been gripped, our senior pastor, by the truth of God's Word. And it has shaken him to his depths and it has transformed all that he can say and do to us. You've got to have grace to be a good pastor and minister. But that's not all that the Apostle Paul says. He says you also have to have Greek. In verse 13 he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Here Paul says, Timothy, you got to have Greek. Because you see, the New Testament is written in Greek. This letter was written in Greek. The Gospels were written in Greek. And as a matter of fact, the text of the Old Testament from which they most easily were able to work and had most readily available was the Septuagint. Old Testament and New, you had to have Greek to know the Scriptures and to preach and teach the good, the very Word of God. Timothy was expected to read it in private. That is, he was expected to sit at home. He was expected to take time and pains and read. Youngsters here, I I know that sounds absolutely unfathomable. How could a man read so much and like to do so? Well, it's the Word of God. Maybe the Lord will give you a great passion and a great fervor, will make you a great reader, and you will read the Word of God very deeply. It can happen to you. You know, we had one child who will remain nameless, and he read the entire Hardy Boys series before he went to the first grade, as I remember it. I kept running out of money buying these books. We had another child who, we were worried for this child because this child was not making progress in reading. I... We were so worried, we held him back. And now he reads Greek and Latin and Syriac and a little English on the side. God can give you a love of reading. God can give you a love of His Word. God can make a difference and fill your mind with His Scriptures. And that's exactly what's needed with regard to the public ministry of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only should you read privately, but... But a good gospel minister has to read publicly. Maybe you're like me. uh, When you go on vacation, you like to visit different churches. 
Maybe you're like me. You like to collect church bulletins. Now, when any of you go on holiday, just please bring me back the bulletin. I want to see it. It gives you kind of a sample. You find you can learn so much in different congregations about what's happening in that place as you see their, their liturgy, their, their worship, what, what they do, what they emphasize. And you know, there are a lot of bulletins that aren't like ours. There are a lot of bulletins that don't begin with a call to worship that's from the Scripture. Uh, they don't have an affirmation of faith that is either quoted from the Bible or line for line, phrase for phrase, word for word, its content is found in the Scriptures somewhere. Uh, there are those whose confession of faith, where they, they recite corporately, you have to sort of screw up your courage and, and read a couple of lines ahead to see whether you can read it in good conscience because it's not based upon the Bible at all. It's some silly political thing someone just dreamed up. Even what we sing. Did you know there there are hymnals in which they've changed the words and they say the silliest of things now and sing the silliest of things in some places. Thank, Thank God that we have a hymnal that is faithful and is filled with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that are meat and food for the soul. A good minister must have Greek. A good minister must read faithfully the word of God to his people. Because you see, at the end of the day, it's not the personality of the minister. It's God, the Holy Spirit, working by and through the word in spite of us that brings a transformation and a change. We don't go into the pulpit with cleverness or just a personality. Our goal is to come and to get out of the way. Sir, we would see Jesus could be plastered right here on this pew because that, that is the fundamental value and commitment in this congregation. And I am so thankful in good conscience and with great boldness to stand and say that an application of this text is we need to thank God for the way He has given us a pastor who loves the Word of God and reads it and teaches it and drives it home to us. You know, there are a lot of reasons to select a church. If you haven't been to a Christchurch Texas barbecue special on a Sunday evening in the middle of the summer, you have something to look forward to. If you never attended our chili cook-off, you have, you have great delight waiting on you just around the corner. But you know, while as good as these things are, they're not the basis, the, the fundamental basis on which to select a church. I think I've told the congregation before that Many years ago, I heard a story about my grandfather who died when my dad was 14. I I never knew him, but he was an elder in the church, uh, First Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And and they had a young man who came to the session and and wanted to join. And and, uh, he was asked a couple of questions. And then finally, one of the gentlemen said, well, now, hold on. You live way outside of the city. Why is it that you want to drive all the way and pass all those other churches even Presbyterian ones and come to First Presbyterian in Winston-Salem. Why, why do you want to be at First Church? And this young man was a man in whom there was no guile. He, he spoke very frankly to the elders and he said, well, I'll tell you. He said, I've got a lot of churches to, to choose between, but this is the one I want to be in because, you see, I really am very eager to be a member of the Salem Racket Club. And I hear that if I'm a member of this church, it will help me in gaining a membership in the Salem Racket Club. And And Dr. Greg Singer looked at me and he said, you know, your grandfather stood up and said, Mr. Moderator, I make a motion. 
My motion is we recommend this man for membership in the Salem Racquet Club and not in First Presbyterian Church. We, we need the Word of God to search our souls to make a difference in our thinking and feeling and living. And you need to choose a church based upon how it values and uses the Word of God. That makes more difference. That matters more than anything else. God bless and protect our congregation in that way. Because you see, the Word of God is what must be preached and must be taught. Verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You know, if all that mattered was the reading of God's Word, then, then you know, there's an app for that. Uh, I recommend to you, you can download a copy of the ESV Study Bible, and, well, it's very easy to do. Just two more taps, and there's someone much more eloquent than myself who, who will read the Word of God to you. That's not a bad way to have a, a devotional life on occasion. It's, it's a nice aid. It's an encouragement. Actually, it helps you know how to pronounce all of those difficult Old Testament place names. The Word of God is not just to be read. It is also to be pressed to mind and heart and life. There is to be exhortation. There is to be real teaching. Not just the playtime with various themes that sort of inspire the mind, but the synthesis of those themes that God gives in His Word. The logic of the matter to be followed. Its relationship to your daily Christian life. The preaching of God's Word ought to make a difference in your ability and interest in reading the Word and encouraging one with another concerning its truth. And that is That is why it is such a wonderful and great blessing that God has led our pastor in this place to set the pattern that is reformational and feeds the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Serial expository preaching where we march through the Gospel of Luke, where we open 1 Timothy on occasion, where we go through the Psalms one at a time, where we, I hear, even turn to Zechariah as well. God's Word, old and new, informing and transforming our lives. This is what is important, and this is what we should give thanks to God for, because He, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has blessed us richly with that in this place. There's grace, there's Greek, and they're both needed. But then there's this third thing called gumption. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't use that word, but the concept certainly is here. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here in the last section of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is driving home to Timothy and you and me that a minister who is a good minister and a gift of Christ to his church is characterized by gumption. He doesn't sit back in his study and prop up his feet and just let life go by. He's busy. He works hard. 
He applies himself. With the reading of God's word and with prayer, he's concerned and active spiritually for the congregation, for their good. You know, I've been here three and a half years. And I have not even once heard someone say, actually, I, think, I don't even think I've heard anything that could begin to be formed into an accusation that our senior pastor is lazy and doesn't do very much. As a matter of fact, everybody that knows our senior pastor knows that he works hard. That he works very hard in love and care and concern for the congregation. And that that is something for which we should thank God. A good minister is called not to neglect his gifts, but rather to stir them up. How do you do that? Well, it's not by taking a spoon and sort of twirling it in your mouth. It's by using those gifts, using your knowledge, using all that God has brought you through and all that God's Word says, all that God has given to you as a gift, not for yourself, but for the blessing and benefit of the church. It means you keep on studying. It means you do the work of an evangelist in season and out of season. It means you don't quench the Spirit, but rather you rejoice and you distribute the fruits and the gifts that God has given and their benefits to the people of God. And note that in the last verse, the Apostle Paul says, Keep close watch. Now, if you're like me, you expect the next words to be, on those really troublesome people in the congregation. But that's not what Paul says. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy was supposed to be teaching. Timothy was the one preaching and teaching to the congregation. And so Paul is telling Timothy to keep watching himself in the mirror to see if he is one who is living out his Christian faith who is applying himself so that in each and every aspect and area of life he is one who is living out that faith, that grace, and that Greek, that knowledge of the scriptures that God has given. So what makes a minister? Clement Graham said it was true. Grace, Greek, and gumption make a minister. And we can thank God for that in this place, that he... That the, that the Lord of all has given us a pastor who loves him and who is, serves him and knows his word. Wise old Principal Graham also went on to say a little bit more. He said, what makes a minister? Grace, Greek, and gumption. And he said, you know, if you come to our seminary, we can help you with that. If you don't have grace, we can sit down with you and we can open the word of God. We can teach you from it. We can show you the plan of salvation and we can get down on your knees, our knees with you and lead you to profess faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can get grace at the Free Church College. And Greek, he said. We can teach you Greek. We can teach you Hebrew. We can teach you the Word of God, Old Testament and New, in great detail. If you need Greek, you come to us and we can teach you Greek. And you need gumption, he said. And, and if you don't have gumption, well, there's nothing anyone can do for you. We can't help you with that. That's between you and the Lord in his own humorous way. God has blessed us in this place with great grace and Greek and gumption in the ministry. And we give thanks to Jesus 
for that wonderful Christmas gift that He gives us each and every Lord's Day. As we continue to keep our eyes on the importance of grace and Greek and gumption in all of our Christian lives, we will know the blessing of God in each of our souls. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask, we ask for more grace and Greek and gumption that you would give it to us each day, not only in our individual lives, but also in the life of the congregation. We give you thanks for the good gift that you have given us, and we pray that you would continue to give that blessing in this place all to your glory. We will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.